will be in Esther chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. But before we get to our text, if you know the story of Esther, you may wonder why the title of the sermon today is Who Knows? Even if you don't know the story of Esther, there is a famous line that is often quoted, and you may have heard it before. The line is, for such a time as this. This is often the title of sermons preached on this passage. It's often the title of sermon series on the book of Esther. It's used in speeches given by politicians, Christian leaders, others who are looking at a certain time in history or a certain period of time as one of action. What is often implied when this line is used is that we know that this is a time such as this. We've discerned this is the time. We've discovered or we've discerned that we know what God is up to. It is our insight and knowledge that has brought us to declare we must or do this or we must do that because for such a time as this. What is often missed or simply ignored is what Mordecai says as part of that speech. He begins by saying, who knows? Esther, who knows? Maybe you've been placed for such a time as this. Mordecai confesses that he doesn't know if this is such a time. He's merely guessing that maybe, just maybe, hoping beyond hope that Esther is in the position she's in for such a time as this. There's no certainty. There's no supernatural insight as some who often use this phrase would like us to believe, there is only a vague hope. For us this morning, my hope is that we come to our text today, that as we come to our text today, the Lord would encourage us, maybe even challenge us to not focus so much on for such a time as this, but focus on who knows. God knows. And that's what makes all the difference. So let's read Esther 4, chapter 1, or verses 1 through 17. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young woman and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend to her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathach went to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him. 
and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for this destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. But then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do you think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews? For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you, whether, you, whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, that we would come to your word this day, seeking to be transformed by it and conformed to it. We pray that you would work as you have promised by and through your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So two weeks ago, Pastor Alex preached on chapter 3. And in chapter 3, we see this plot that Haman devises to rid the world of the Jewish people in response to Mordecai's refusal to show him honor in his new position that the king had placed him in. We saw from the text that because God is faithful to his covenant, we respond by trusting in him. Trusting by not conforming to this world and culture, trusting in humility, and trusting his perfect plan. This morning, we pick up right where we left off two weeks ago. And as Pastor Alex pointed out, the evil sought to be perpetuated by Haman was not purely uh, human evil, it was satanic. Haman's anti-Semitism was straight from the pit of hell, and Satan has sought and would seek to use this evil, not just Haman's, but evil perpetuated against God's people throughout their history to blot out God's covenant promise. Right? You see that Haman's evil plan is not just some evil guy wanting to get back at Haman. In fact, the evil one is using this to seek to blot out God's covenant promise. 
right? To blot out that promise that the seed of Eve would rise up and strike down. Throughout Scripture, we see those with evil intent seeking to destroy God's people. And ultimately, behind the scene, it is the evil one seeking to blot out the promise of God that a Messiah would come to save his people, to put things to right, to put an end to the evil one. And so this evil decree has gone out, and Mordecai, along with, all, with the Jews all over the Persian Empire, are distraught, as you might expect. And Mordecai and all the Jews show their distress by entering into a kind of national mourning. They tear their clothes, they put on sackcloth and ashes, and this would not have been understood not only by the Jewish people as, as a way to mourn and lament, but the Persians would have as well. You'll remember in the story of Jonah, the Ninevites do the same exact thing. They tear their clothes, they put on sackcloth and ashes for 30 days because who knows, God might relent and turn from his anger. And so, the Persians would have understood this as well. This was serious to see these people in this state. And Esther was made aware of Mordecai's mourning and seeks to comfort him by sending him new garments, but he will have none of this. She then seeks to understand why, is he, why he's refused her gift, and he explains what has happened and tells her that she must intercede on behalf of her people and this sets up what I'd like for us to focus on our text today. We must ask the question that Mordecai is asking Esther, even though he's told her not to do this in the past, he is now changing his mind. But do we identify with God's people? Do we identify with God's people? Our text is asking us this question through the question of Mordecai, through the actions of Esther. Do we identify with God's people? And this question is for all of us who are here this morning. Maybe you have grown up as part of God's people like Esther did, but you've not publicly identified with the people of God. Right, you, like Esther, she grew up as a Jewish girl. She grew up likely with many of the traditions of the Jewish people, though not, we're not sure how much she and her people had identified also with the pagan culture, as we've talked about. But to some degree, she grew up knowing who she was as part of the people of God. But through... Mordecai's instruction, maybe through her own desire to keep that secret, she does not identify with the people of God. Not in a way, any way that the text would say that anyone knew that she was of Jewish descent. Maybe that's you this morning. You've experienced all the blessings of God's people. You understand all the, what it means to be a part of God's people, and yet you have not identified yourself 
as one of God's people. This morning we got to be reminded and witness what it is to identify with God's people publicly through a profession of reaffirmation of faith or through profession of faith and baptism. There are these ways in which we identify as the people of God. Maybe you're here exploring Christianity and what would it mean for you to identify with the people of God? What things would you have to turn from to identify with God's people? What ways would you need to readjust the way you think about life, even death, to identify with God's people? What about those of us who publicly identify with the people of God when it's convenient for us or when it won't cost us anything? Right, the dilemma that Esther faces in our text, while much more intense than what we might face, is still a dilemma that we all face. And if we're honest, we face it each and every day. There are opportunities for us as God's people each and every day to be identified as one of God's people. And in Mordecai's mind, the only hope he and the Jewish people have relies in Esther's identity. Her life may be in jeopardy if she goes into the king uninvited, but her doom is certain if she does not. And Mordecai's remark is a bit unsettling. If you read the text, you kind of may, might just, if you kind of just read through it, you may not catch that, but think about what Mordecai is actually doing here and saying. If Esther fails to act as he's requesting, is he threatening her? I mean, how else would Esther be known to be a Jew unless somebody outs her? She is done a good job up until this point. It's been five years that she's been in, been queen. She's kept her identity as a Jewish woman secret for five years. What is Mordecai actually saying in our text? Or is he invoking some kind of divine judgment upon her for her apparent apathy toward her people? Esther might be wondering the same thing when she hears Mordecai's response. And quite frankly, the author just leaves us in that ambiguity. We don't know exactly what's happening here. But we do know that Esther is being pushed, being pleaded with to act, to identify to help us understand what exactly is happening here in our text, especially since God is not mentioned, when it would seem like if there's any place in the book of Esther that God would be mentioned, <laughs> this is it, right? This is where you would have it, right? The, the, the mourning, the sackcloth, the ashes. Who knows, maybe God would intervene, 
Mordecai's speech to Esther to identify with her people, to identify with the people of God. Or, and he even says that help may come even if she doesn't act. But who is that help coming from? Or maybe when we get to, to the part where Esther then asks for her people to fast with her, there's no mention of prayer, of bringing their request to God. So God is still not mentioned. So how do we begin to understand maybe what is happening here? So we, to see how God may be at work, how, his, how he's kept his promise and his covenant, it's helpful to see how our text might connect with other Old Testament texts. Many commentators point to this, that one such text is Joel chapter 2. In Joel chapter 2, there's a threat of impending judgment, and the Lord commands his people through the prophet Joel with these words. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. Since the same Hebrew phrases are found in the Lord's exhortation through the prophet Joel that occurs here in Esther to describe Mordecai's response and to call Esther to her vocational calling. The very next statement Joel makes says, rend your heart and not your garments. It resonates with Mordecai's reaction. He has rendered his garments, but he is also rending his heart before the people of Susa, before Esther, and we hope before God. The invitation in Joel 2 is to, return, is to turn to the Lord in repentance. And it's invoked again in this interaction between Mordecai, between Mordecai and Esther. And we see that the Jews' response and what Mordecai is doing, fasting, weeping, wailing, and then their response in fasting in Esther's request in the face of calamity is this vision of repentance called for by Joel. If the people fast and weep and mourn, the prophet says, who knows? He, referring to the Lord God, may turn and have pity. And so Mordecai's statement about who knows, but that you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this echoes Joel's suggestion that this is how a people, how an individual, how a corporate people turn to God in a time of need. Turn and have, that the Lord might have pity on his people, relenting from sending calamity. 
right? Even in this understanding of what is happening, that the Lord is allowing this evil proclamation to be, to be made, ultimately for the good of his people. Right? We've, we've seen hints and things throughout Esther would, that would show us that God's people had lost their fervor, had lost their identity, had lost a love and dedication to the one true God. And God is using, as he does through the prophet Joel, this calamity to wake up his people. Say, return to me. Come back to me. I am gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And I relent from sending calamity. What is the calamity in your life today? What might the Lord be allowing in your life to call you to himself for the first time or to call you back to him? I am gracious and compassionate, abounding in love and relenting from sending calamity. That is the God of Esther. That is our God. Who knows? We know. We know because we have the rest of the story. We know that God has caused the calamity that is coming to us all to be stopped by sending his son, Jesus Christ, who has taken the calamity upon himself. Who went to the cross to receive utter destruction in our place. The prophet Joel goes on, blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly. And this is basically what Esther is doing. She is, for the first time in the story, identifying herself with God's people and responds to the prophetic call of Joel to repentance by joining with the Jews of Susa in this fast. In this moment, we see Esther decide who she really is. As Leland Reichen points out, Esther is the only person in the story with two names. Her Hebrew name, Hadasha, 
and her Persian name, Esther. And he reads this as an indication of the identity crisis which she has faced throughout her life. Being raised as a Jew, yet living as a pagan in the kingdom of Persia. And given that Esther is the main character of the story, the author invites us to reflect on her character development, perhaps even comparing it to our own. How has she grown in our story? How have we grown? And are we willing to identify with the people of God as God works in our life? In her commentary, Karen Job reminds us of this from this chapter in Esther. The gospel confronts us with the decision either to continue to live as pagans or to identify ourselves with God's people, the church. Our choice defines who we are and with what people we identify. The decision to be identified with Christ energizes our lives. It gives us a purpose bigger than our own concerns and problems and a hope that, gives, that goes beyond our own death. It transforms us into people moved by the Holy Spirit, human agents of God's grace and love in the world. However, the new birth is only the beginning of the decisions to identify with God's people. It is followed by a continuous sequence of defining moments throughout life as we daily face decisions. The demand we choose either to identify ourselves with Christ by obedience to his word or to live as a pagan in that moment. Each of us, as she points out, have a decision when we come to the knowledge of Christ to identify ourselves with he and his church, the bride of Christ. But those decisions do not end there. They are an ongoing aspect of our discipleship. How will we live out our identity as followers of Christ in the day-to-day -day of family life, of work, of service in our communities, in our recreational pursuits, in all aspects of life, how does that identity change the way in which we live? And yet, while the text leaves us not knowing yet what will happen, there is hope. The text leaves us at the end with hope. Hope for the hopeless has emerged in the form of a young woman who has grown in character, whom God has placed, now we know, for such a time as this. God knows. That's who knows. Not only does God know, but God has identified with us. You see, God calls us as his people like he called Esther to identify with him 
he calls us to do that because first and foremost, he is identified with us. In this text, in this passage, in the person of Esther, we see a foreshadowing of Christ. Right? We, like Esther and her people, deserve to be blotted out. We deserve to be blotted out because of our sin, yet Christ has identified with his people in every way. He has identified us with us so completely and fully that he is the one who takes that penalty upon himself, as I mentioned earlier. He is the one who risks, yet even goes to death on behalf of his people. He not only has the potential of death before him, but he surely goes to death for us. And as he has gone to death for us and has been raised to new life and ascended to the right hand of the Father, he is the one who goes before the king of the universe and continues to intercede on our behalf. He has put his very life on the line for us, even unto death. And in so doing, he has given us life and freedom. He has given us a new hope, a place in his kingdom where there is no fear of death. As we read in Romans earlier, there is no fear for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There is not tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. No. In all these things, even if we experience them all, even if it comes to death, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For the Apostle Paul and anyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus, I'm sure that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God has identified with us. Identified with us so fully that nothing, can separate us from his love in Christ Jesus. And because he has identified with us, we are called to identify with his people. Let's pray. Heavenly God, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book of Esther. Lord, that while it does not speak your name, Lord, your name is proclaimed in the silence. Your work, your action is all over. 
the events. And Lord, I pray as we close this morning, Lord, that you would remind us that you are at work. You are there. Even in the times when we cannot see, Lord, you are there. And Lord, that you have identified with us and your Son. And Lord, that you have taken the edict upon yourself. The edict of destruction has been taken by you. You are the one who intercedes. You are the one who gives life. And Lord, we are secure in your kingdom. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of our Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.